Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's Monday, June 3rd, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So have you ever heard of a guy named John Urschel? Have I heard of John Urschel? You bet. John kind of combines a bunch of my interests all in one because he was a professional football player and he's now a PhD candidate in math at MIT. Uh, yeah, plus, I figured, figured plus he he's from he Winnipeg and went to school in Buffalo, like two of my favorite places on this earth. Um, wow. So yeah, I feel like you almost know more about him than I do. <laughs> I'm him. I, I partially know about him because he's become this, this incredible story that ESPN and every sort of like sports outlet likes to report on because he seems like a bit of a unicorn, like the offensive lineman uh, that played pro football, but is also a math genius of some sort. And in that way, like I've seen his story pop up everywhere. Yeah, so I guess I don't follow the same sports channel stuff that you do. <laughs> so he was, he was, he was, uh, I, I had never heard of him. And I, and I hadn't, you know, I, I didn't really know that someone uh, like him existed. And I was really intrigued uh, when I came across his book, which is called Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. And you know how I feel about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, about head injuries, about the dangers of, you know, playing a game in which you're constantly getting your head hit. Um, and yeah, I feel very strongly about this. It's something I lecture about to my students. It's it's something that I've used to make decisions about whether or not I will let my child play football. The answer is no, not in America anyway, where <laughs> until things really change. Um, and so to find someone who is equally prized for his you know high level intelligence uh, and still chose to play professional football is really intriguing to me. Um, so I read his book, and it's interesting to me for another reason as well, is that it's actually almost like reading two memoirs, um, because he writes about math and he writes about football, and it's kind of, the he tells those stories in parallel, and they're both really interesting stories. Um, and I also want to actually give credit to his partner, Louisa Thomas, who co-wrote the book with him. And, and 
you know, it was fascinating to me from the perspective of a person interested in passion and in training and, you know, how you get better at things that are very complex um, to, to hear about his football training and, and what it was that he enjoyed about, you know, developing himself as a football player. Um, but then also math, which to me, you know, is it, it's of all the STEM fields, it's the one that is the most mysterious. And, you know, I've, I've always had this kind of gnawing feeling at the back of my head that, you know, math is just something that I'm not good at. <laughs> and I know the data on fixed and growth mindsets and how you know, this is not an uncommon, uh, um, you know, opinion or belief, but that it's also not uh, supported by the evidence that, you know, you can get better at it through practice. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, uh, mathematicians just seem like they speak a language that I don't understand. I, I totally get that. I have I grew up in a household where I was really encouraged to uh, find my inner math nerd. Uh, in fact, my, my dad still like kind of does math as a hobby in his spare time, which I will probably never understand. Uh, so I was lucky enough to grow in an environment where math was celebrated and encouraged. And in a weird way, like my sort of incessant sports fandom, like reintroduced me to just how pervasive math is and how joyful it can be because pretty much every deep dive into fandom that you do now is uh, is peppered with analytics that really combine some cutting edge uh, mathematical modeling and information together. So I kind of think this is such an interesting interview from the, you have an offensive lineman who is kind of like offensive linemen are some of the uh, faces of CTE in the NFL. You have somebody that clearly it like loves math and enjoys math in such a rich way. And you have this kind of intermingling of, of this like math is hard and all of that mindset all kind of rolled into one. It should be an interesting conversation. Yeah. And I, I should say that the kind of math that, you know, I, I, I read about in terms of baseball stats or uh, you know, kind of the economic side of it. That stuff I totally get and I understand and I and I enjoy the kind of logic puzzles. Like the, the kind of math that I've always found really intimidating or is the kind that just looks like a bunch of squiggly lines on a chalkboard. <laughs> um and you know, maybe it's that it's it's just this kind of idea that there is this whole other kind of way of thinking about the world uh, that involves symbols that I have to really think about translating. Uh, that I find intimidating. And I should say that the cover of his book pictures him standing in front of a chalkboard in front of all kinds of symbols uh, that I, you know, understand about 50% of. (laughs) It's an alien language, but a universal one at that. I'm, but I'm ready. I get to say this for the first time ever on this podcast, bring on the math and bring on the football. John Urschel, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm really good, and I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, in part because I know nothing about what it's like to be a football player. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, uh, and I also, you know, had a, a, a you know, reading, reading your book, I kind of f- saw myself in in a lot of ways in which you described yourself as a kid. I too loved puzzles and logic games. And then, uh, you know, I thought math was just this tedious thing that you had to get through. Um, and when I got to college, I took calculus, you know, at the college level. And all of a sudden I was like, I don't understand a thing. 
like everything that I had learned about math was completely wrong. I was totally unprepared for a college level math course. Um, so we'll get to football in a second, but I want to start with your uh, sort of interest in math. Um, when you were a child, you know, tell us a little bit about how you came to enjoy the the kind of the, the you know ultimately what led you to become a mathematician. But let's start with what how you okay, like. Okay, sure. But uh, if you'll allow me, I mean, this is your podcast. I'd like to uh, first answer your question with a question. Did you, I'm sorry to hear about your experience in calculus. Did you so you, so you didn't really enjoy it? I take it. Um, it was the first time where, I mean, all the way through high school, you know, I did really well in math because it was just, it was like, if you do these steps, you will get the right answer and therefore you will get 100%, right? And so like, I, I figured out how to do that. To me, it was just a logic puzzle. It's like you go through these steps and there's always a right answer. And I got to my calculus class and the first thing the professor said is like, math doesn't always have a right answer. And I was like, What? <laughs> wait a minute, you know, it's like all about proving a, a theorem or proving, you know, uh, how you get there. And, you know, it was, I, I, mean, I think in part, I had a very young, uh, almost first time mathematician professor. And so I think he was very excited about sharing some of the deep, you know, deep qualities of math with his undergrads and not really realizing that most of us had just left high school and we had really no idea what he was talking about. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's, that's quite a dangerous thing. And, uh, I, trust me, I will get to your question, but I have to say, since you brought it up, that, uh, you know, this um, this sort of like, you know, this puzzle that has an easy solution of sort of like, remember sort of the steps and, you know, do it a bunch of times and then get 100 on the exam is sort of, uh, I think, is one of the reasons why people eventually like get to a point where they say, you know, I wasn't good at math or math wasn't for me. I mean, listen, I could be completely wrong, but I get the sense that, you know, people often tell me stories about how they sort of followed this process like you did of sort of, you know, this is how they did well in math. And then they eventually got to a math class where they struggled and then they just like decided math wasn't for them because it was like it was hard at some point. Yeah, exactly. And like, I, and then I didn't even know what to do. You know what I mean? It was like, I didn't even know how to think about it. Whereas like, I could, I could go into a literature class and my teacher could be like, well, you know, there are all these metaphors and ideas and some of them I didn't, you know, hadn't seen and or hadn't, you know, um, figured out when I was reading it, but I, I'd still be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's another way of looking at it. But math felt like there was only one way. <laughs> and if you didn't know what that way was, then somehow your brain just wasn't, you know, suited for it, which now in retrospect, I see was was really a kind of wrong-headed view. Well, yes, a wrong-headed view, but I have to say that uh, it's a very common one and it's a very natural one. And I would say that sort of in math, you know, you have some math problem. There's, you know, there's a solution, there's an answer, but there's sort of many ways to get to it. And I would say that a lot of times kids get sort of so wrapped up and, you know, teachers to some degree as well, so wrapped up in this process of, you know, remembering the formula or the sort of quote unquote algorithm to solve something, do it a bunch of times and then repeat on the exam. And oftentimes young people start to think that what's important is the result, the sort of getting a hundred on the exam, being able to sort of like, repeat what your teacher showed you and you sort of check off a box and then you move on. But uh, 
I sort of argue, or at least my sort of math education when I was young, wasn't really focused on that result, but it was focused on the process, the process of sort of trying to learn some area of math, trying to understand how to solve a problem, and sort of struggling to try to figure out, like, how do we solve this problem? How can we be sure that this works? And how can we sort of like, sort of work from sort of not knowing how to approach a problem at all to sort of being able to solve it? And when I was sort of learning math when I was younger, I have to say, math was always hard. Math was always challenging. And as strange as this sounds, I think that because, you know, students are focused on this idea of let's just take this formula or this algorithm, let's just do it a bunch of times and then, you know, consider it done. I think people get the idea that math became hard at some point when, in fact, I sort of feel like math is always challenging and has always been challenging. And that's one of the sort of very enjoyable things about it is enjoying the process of learning how to do something new as opposed to focusing on the result. And when you sort of, when sort of what you're interested in and what matters is sort of the process, then all of a sudden when sort of you come across a challenge, it's not so discouraging, I would say. I'm, I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but that's sort of my thought process. It does. And it's really interesting for me to hear how even at a young age, you sort of saw it as something that you had to work on that required effort. Uh, whereas for me, I, ha I had a very good memory when I was a kid. And so for math was just memorization. It was like, okay, here's, you know, here's the next step that I just need to memorize. And so I think when I got to the point where I couldn't just rely on memory, I had to actually go through the steps. I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and so then I just felt, well, like, I guess I don't know what to do now. So now it's, you know, it's not for me. Um, and, I, and I think that you're right and that the way math is taught, or at least has been taught traditionally, at least was when I was going to school. I mean, I think that this is changing a little bit um, as I hear about curricula now, including more um, emphasis on the process uh, as you describe it. Uh, but, you know, yeah, I just I, I think that that was my problem is that um, I, I just didn't know the steps to go. Um, and and whereas, you know, it's funny, it's like when you when you when you present it as a problem, like in your book, you actually have a number of um, like one one that stuck with me is like, what's the algorithm for making a sandwich, you know, or or you know, these other. And then I'm like, oh, OK, well, that's just logic. I can walk work through those steps and I understand that. And it doesn't feel so much like math, uh, although, of course, it is. No, no, I, uh, I think, and now I'm finally sort of circling around to answer your question. My experiences with math as a young person were really, really interesting. And I think it, it helped shape me as a mathematician and also my view of mathematics. When I was little, first of all, I mean, I could have been good at, I don't know what, and who really knows if I was good at math when I was little, but my mom, for whatever reason, thought that I had some potential in quantitative reasoning because of, you know, things that I would do when I was, you know, like not even two years old involving sort of like, I would love to play games in which I would recognize shapes that I knew from home outside in the world. And this was like one of my favorite games. And so my mom started to get the idea that, you know, I was, strong quantitatively, she would buy me lots of puzzle books and I would I would just eat these things up and she would also buy me math workbooks 
and the math workbooks I would treat just like my puzzle books. And what I would do is, you know, I would go to some section and, okay, I mean, you have to know how to like add and multiply and all these things, but, you know, conditional on knowing like the very, very basics, I would go to, you know, some, you know, math workbook on, you know, whatever it may be, like middle school, you know, geometry, and I would just go to the problems. And I wouldn't read the sort of section before the problems about how to solve certain math problems. I would just go to the problems and I would just try to solve them. And that process of seeing a problem almost in the wild, so to speak, and trying to figure out how to approach it, how to solve it, that was a really fun and enjoyable experience. And that sort of process of me being actively engaged in trying to figure out how to solve certain classes of problems. And then, you know, if I, you know, if I couldn't figure it out on my own, then going back through the chapter and then seeing how someone else had figured out how to do it. And then to think, oh, why didn't I think of that? Uh, in what way was my sort of thinking process wrong? Or I would be in awe of the idea of how to solve it because I spent some time thinking about it and I wasn't able to. I appreciated like the idea that much more. So I want to talk a little bit about what drove you then to play football. Uh, what, you know, tell us a little bit about that journey. Yes. So I played football in high school. And the reason why I wanted to play football in the first place is because my father, he played college football at the University of Alberta. And he, he really enjoyed it. It was sort of a big part of who he was. And I don't know, he was always sort of, uh, I don't even know how to put it. I had such an interesting relationship with my father when I was young, but in many ways I wanted to be just like him. And I just, I wanted to play football so bad solely because he played football. And by the end of the first practice, I was, I was already hooked. I mean, I wasn't, uh, my technique was awful. I barely knew how to put my pads on, but uh, I just really enjoyed hitting people. So it's that it was that kind of contact that got you interested in, in the you know yes I mean, yes purely purely the contact nothing else. And then it's it seemed to become a ticket to college for you first, and then ultimately when you were drafted into the NFL, um, you, you know you describe the moment where you were waiting for the phone call, and it seemed like it was something you really wanted in part because it could really set you up financially and your family. Uh, for a long time. So was there a time when this kind of the motivation shifted from, hey, I just really like doing this in my free time to, hey, I can actually use this as a tool to make my life and my life of my family members better? Yeah, but it's, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing, I have to say. So I want to talk about this really precisely. First of all, I want to sort of stress that uh, Football in no way was sort of my ticket to college in sort of like no way, shape or form in the sense that, yes, I did go to Penn State on a football scholarship, but at the same time, I was, uh, I was quite a strong student and I was going to university regardless. I had been accepted to Princeton and some other places. While I'm extremely grateful to football because, well, I went to college on a full athletic scholarship and this, you know, this of course really helps financially. I should say that like 
thinking about football sort of as a ticket, I, uh, I have to say that I want to sort of stress that I was going to college anyway. I would have gone to college anyway. And I was also sort of a strong student. And as far as, uh, and at that point I was still playing football very much for just complete enjoyment. I would say that sort of around my senior year at Penn state, it became obvious that, uh, I was likely going to be drafted into the NFL, and so I would have a good chance of making a roster. And the salary's not bad. Uh, I'm playing football at the highest level, and so it was something I really wanted to do. I decided, you know, I thought about it. I decided, well, John, you've put up, you've put off the PhD for this long. You uh, you might as well sort of put it off for another, like, you know, you can put it off for another four years or five years, and. Uh, and it'll be fine and you can uh, play some football, play at the highest level and make some money. And it, uh, I mean, while it's a good thing to be able to sort of play a sport like football at the highest level and make a, quite a good income, because in other sports playing at the highest level, you don't have sort of a high income. I should say that uh, this this isn't a very good thing to like singularly sort of aspire to. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it more explicitly and say you probably are not telling young kids who look up to you as a role model that, you know, their only way to get to college or their best way of making a living is to become a professional football player. Exactly. And in fact, one of my favorite things to do is to talk to a group of young people and be able to convince them that, in fact, even being a professional football player is really not as good as some other careers. Uh, so I, I want to talk a little bit about that since you know we're, we're, we're skirting around an issue that I'm very passionate about uh, and, and one that is a difficult problem, actually, I think, in American society in particular, which is that in addition to having a short career span, uh, there are potentially devastating health problems that follow a professional career in football. Um, and in particular, what I'm most familiar with is the damage to the brain. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy, for example. So I want to first get your, uh, since I'm sure you've done your research on it, sort of get your understanding of uh, kind of the prevalence and the risk of developing CTE. Because in your book, you talk about how that really didn't factor very highly in terms of your decision to continue to play football or not. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that. First of all, I should say that I think that's a really faulty assumption because I'm sorry to tell you, I don't know hardly anything about it. I don't know much about it at all, I have to say. I, uh, I'm not extremely informed on the subject. and. Yes, I'm just simply not very informed on the subject. And perhaps this sort of ties to the fact that it wasn't sort of like, it was, of course, something you consider and something you think about. But uh, no, I did not do a great deal of research about it. And uh, I have to admit that I'm probably going to sort of uh, show my my ignorance on the subject because sort of my knowledge of, uh, of CTE, and I'm not going to try to pronounce what that stands for, but uh, my knowledge is basically along the lines of uh, it's some sort of degeneration of the brain. It is not necessarily just related to concussions, but also perhaps these so-called subconcussive hits. There have been some studies that sort of have looked at this in sort of deceased football players 
and uh, one of which was a thing that, uh, yeah, that unfortunately came out like uh, a few days before I retired. And uh, it sort of looked at the brains of sort of a ton of former NFL players and found that sort of the majority of them did have some signs of CTE. And uh, it seems that it's fairly obvious that the percentage of sort of former football players that have CTE is not 0%. But uh, also, I, I'm not sure, but I'm fairly confident it's not, it's not that close to 100% either. Well, let me, let me just say that in that particular study that you're thinking of, it was 110 out of 111. So there's only yes. one, uh, but you know, people have argued, and and I, by the way, I, I will say that your description is is entirely accurate. I, oh, <laughs> I okay. have no, Thank yeah, you're and, exactly uh, right. It is not about concussions. It about is it is about the number of hits, and I will fully admit that there is a a potential bias in the paper because the people who had uh, who donated their brains to the study uh, are more likely to have family members who have noticed, you know symptoms of CTE and that's why they are motivated to donate their brains, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, if you don't, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's the so-called self-selection bias. Exactly. So we don't know that, that, that that's the, the accurate number, but it, but it was shocking, uh, I think, for a lot of us that it was so high. Yeah, it's shocking, but uh, I have to say, I mean, this is one thing that I like to think about is, okay, I mean, sure, we're talking about, you know, CTE or, you know, whatever, but in general, just like as sort of high functioning human beings who sort of reason through things quantitatively, you see a statistic and immediately it makes you want to feel a certain way. And one of the powers of like having strong quantitative reasoning is you often need to stop and say, okay, I hear what the statistic says. Perhaps my brain is trying to tell me that this statistic immediately implies something. Does it imply this to the extent that I want to sort of immediately believe it does? Are there any confounding variables? What is the statistic actually saying? And I, I'm jumping around, but I have to say that I think this sort of ability is one of the major benefits of like mathematical training, even for people not going into scientific fields. This ability to sort of reason quantitatively around things people tell you. And uh, I, I know it's like it's awful form to advertise someone else's book when you're on a podcast, sort of talking about your own book. But if uh, if reader, I mean, if listeners are sort of interested in this sort of concept, the idea of the power of sort of having mathematical training and sort of having some sort of uh, quantitative literacy, I'll call it. Uh, then I highly recommend people check out uh, Jordan Ellenberg's How Not to Be Wrong, who Jordan's a buddy of mine. He's a great guy, and I think it's a fantastic book. If there is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. 
And if for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com minds, then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com minds. This episode was sponsored by you by Okta. Do you wonder how dating apps have shaped our ideas of love and romance? Whether technology has changed who we consider family or what blockchain actually is and how it could revolutionize how we protect ourselves online, then I have a new podcast to share with you called You. Hosted by writer and musician Claire L. Evans and brought to you by Okta, You explores how modern identity exists at the intersection of technology and humanity. In each episode, Claire speaks with renowned experts in the fields of science, technology, art, philosophy, and design. Her questions uncover deep insight into how tech is changing the way we see ourselves, each other, and the world. In the first season, you covers everything from the algorithm of our hearts to virtual reality, digital assistance, and how internet fame can become internet shame. To find the podcast, search for You by Okta. That's O-K-T-A, wherever you get your podcasts, and start listening today. All right, so let's get back to the more difficult question that you are uniquely qualified to answer, um, which is this, you know, how how the kind of the information about CTE influenced you. Um, and and, and I, you're totally right to call out the fact that these numbers have a valence. And, uh, you know, for someone like me who, you know, I grew up in Canada, football was was not a part of the culture of mine growing up. So I have no affinity towards it. So it didn't seem, you know, I, I didn't get emotional when I found out that there is this potential danger for football players. What, what bothered me about it is this idea that people would, um, you know, go and do this risky behavior and not know that there was this consequence. Um, but now it seems like there, you know, the information is out there. So just like I get in the car and drive, and that's a dangerous thing to do because, you know, it's the leading cause of fatalities in my age group. <laughs> um, people can go and choose to play football knowing that this is a risk. Yes, yes, exactly. And I have to say that, uh, first of all, I'm in favor of much more research on this subject. I, I think, okay, I mean, Okay, perhaps I'm not in strong favor in the sense that, you know, maybe there are things that are like higher up on the food chain, but I think this deserves to be somewhere sort of on the food chain of like importance of things we should sort of be researching. And I'd really, I'd like to know sort of, I would like more sort of work on it. And uh, I have to admit that while it's easy for me and for people to sort of look at this, uh, this study and say, well, not only does it seem like there's sort of self-selection bias, me being a sort of a former, I'll call myself a football player. I know that there is a strong self-selection bias because, you know, I just sort of know sort of retired football players. I mean, you know, if you're a retired NFL player and you live a good life and, uh, and then you die, no one's donating your brain. But uh, I, I also recognize the fact that it's not easy. How do you do a fair study? How do you actually try to figure out empirically what the percentage really is? Because I've got, I've got news for you. I've got no clue. How do you sort of perform sort of an unbiased study? This yeah, is a I mean, legitimate question I'm, I'm asking you. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, 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 because because we need permission to uh, look at people's brains after they die, you either have to get, you know, a, a sort of random sample to sign up to donate their brains before, you know, while they're still playing football. So before mm-hmm. there's any indication that there will be this bias or we need to find a biomarker that we can track. So the accumulation of the tau protein, um, which I know you know about it because you wrote about it in your book, <laughs> um, which seems to be the misfolded protein that is implicated in the disease. You know, if we could find a biomarker for that in people who are healthy and then we could, you know, have people, you know, all, all the, you know, a, yeah, a much more randomly selected sample, then I think we would, we would know more. Yes. And yeah. And your, your answer, I, I, well, first of all, you know that your answer is spot on, but I will say your answer is sort of spot on about, uh, yes, about sort of this marker and also sort of in the absence of this, I also sort of came to the same conclusion that I don't know a better way than just uh, like picking these people, like perhaps as soon as they get into the NFL and then sort of making sure they sign up and then just having to wait until they die. <laughs> Yeah. which is sort of takes a long time. Yep. I, I don't know Hopefully. who's going to fund that study. You know, it's not going to be the NFL. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so yeah. I admit that there's, you know, there's a real, there's a real sort of tough problem here. But the one good thing I will say sort of about this study that I do like is that uh, people know it's not 0%. People don't know it's not like epsilon close to 0%. And maybe like, maybe some people didn't know that. And it's easy to sort of like feign ignorance and not know that um, without sort of a body of research. And so the one, I mean, I think that first of all, it's good that more research is coming out about this. And the good thing about that is that about sort of the, the paper we were discussing is now I don't think anyone should sort of it will be hard for anyone to sort of take the stance that it's zero percent. Yeah, no, I think you're and right. And that's important. So one of the I wanted to get back to how we started the top of the show where, you know, I I told our listeners about the New York Times opinion piece that I really enjoyed reading. So in this piece you talk about how you wish that some math teachers were more like football coaches. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So first of all, I do want to qualify this in the sense that I don't think math teachers should should sort of like carry whistles around their neck. I'm not sure that math teachers should use the sort of same like external motivating techniques that football coaches use on the football field. And I think math, I think football coaches could learn a lot from math teachers. The sort of simplified sort of discussion that I made or argument that I made was simply that, first of all, I recognize football is, you know, cool, so to speak. And football coaches really have like, majority of their work done for them. But one of the things I noticed sort of anecdotally was that my football coaches really motivated me past what I thought of myself, past what I thought I was capable of in the sense that my football coaches, these were always the people who told me to dream the biggest. My high school football coaches, these were the people who told me, John, you can be an offensive lineman in the Big Ten, which was my dream, I have to say. And they said, you know, you can do this and you have this talent, you have this ability. You just, you just need to work very, very hard. And like, this is something you can do. And I didn't think I was capable of this. And it was them sort of telling me like, no, John, you can do this. That really had an impact on me. 
And I would say that a little bit of motivation can go a long way. And it's especially hard for young people to aspire to do something or dream of becoming something if they don't know what that something is and they don't feel like perhaps they're capable of it. And I would say that, you know, almost across the board, it's almost like sort of a meme, so to say, like football coaches are always telling their sort of strong athletes that they can play at the next level, that they have potential if they work hard enough. And I think that sort of just looking at that form of motivation and the power of that motivation is something that maybe math teachers could pay attention to when they're trying to serve their stronger students, which first of all, I want to say the comparison is not perfect because sort of math teachers really have to care for an entire classroom. And I think like uh, sports coaches, they do tend to sort of favor their stronger athletes, but uh, this was sort of, this was the type of discussion I was having. Yeah. And you know, you, you describe relationships between a, yourself and a couple of coaches really well in the book, uh, you know, who, that, that, that kind of really helped you continue to pursue both paths uh, in the in the best way possible. You also describe a couple of interactions with some math professors. Uh, one, I remember at, at MIT, who I think ultimately became your advisor, um, where, you know, they weren't quite so rah-rah. They didn't have a whistle. <laughs> um, they encouraged you in a more quiet way. You know, one of them actually actively discouraged you, which could be a, a kind of way of motivating. And I'm thinking of the story where he kind of gave you a, a problem and said, you know, you probably won't be able to solve this and don't worry about that. But, you know, you should also look at other professors. <laughs> and you came back a few days later with a solution and said, I, I really want to work with you. Yes. And I, first of all, knowing him extremely well, there's, there's zero encouragement or discouragement in that. That's just him sort of stating uh, he, he's not a, uh, he's, yeah, he, he's not, but he's, he's a mathematician. He's not a motivator. But I, I think that, you know, in order to do something as physically grueling as playing football at a professional level, I mean, you talk about, you know, just how bodily, you know, how, just to the pain, the physical pain that you have to endure and how you've watched other players endure major injuries and then go back on the field. And even when you had your, you know, concussion, the 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 doctor was not really worried so much about your ability to think, but when you could go back onto the field, uh, which, you know, probably speaks to the motivation of a lot of these players where, you know, they they will... They will overcome physical pain, um, you know, mental pain, et cetera, in order to get back out there. And that's that's obviously highly motivating. Yeah, no, uh, uh, certainly. And I think, first of all, there's just a different culture around motivation. But I will say that my math professor in college, a guy by the name of Vadim Kaloshin, this is the one person who decided that, you know, he... He had me in one of his classes. It was like a very low-level class. And he decided that he thought that I had talent in mathematics. And he took it upon himself to come up to me and to tell me to come see him in his office and to give me a book and to give me a problem to work on and to sort of encourage me and tell me that he thought I had talent in mathematics. And that little motivation is really all it took to sort of uh, sort of be the gateway to me becoming a mathematician. And if he doesn't reach out to me, which I have to say, he gets no benefit to reaching out to some undergrad who knows like no math, really. That doesn't help his career at all. 
if anything, it actively takes time away from things that, you know, time away from research or time with PhD students. But his little influence, I mean, he's the reason I became a mathematician. If he doesn't reach out to me, I don't know that I'm a mathematician today. And I'll say that the reason why he reached out to me was because he loves mathematics and he wants to sort of share that love of mathematics with other people. But uh, I just, when I think about things like this, it just sort of reminds me like the power that motivation has had in my life. What is it that you're studying in math and how do you see yourself contributing to the world of math? So what I'm studying now is I study mainly theoretical computer science. So I look at uh, networks. I, uh, I look at uh, a subject of computer science called information theory. I do some things with algorithms and I also do some work with machine learning. And my goals are to be an academic, to continue to do research and also to sort of teach and inspire young people. John Urschel. Thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. And I want to remind our listeners that his book, uh, written uh, along with his partner, Louisa Thomas, Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Kishore, your kid goes to a very good San Francisco public school. What do you think if his math teacher started wearing a whistle and making him do drills? (laughs) I actually wouldn't mind that. Uh, Maybe that's because I think my kid would respond well to like that kind of coaching environment. Uh I don't know. That analogy was kind of funny to me, too. And and I don't know if it's just like born out of uh, that kid still inside of me that, you know, wasn't good at sports, that wasn't super comfortable uh, with that, you know, entire facet of school and having that being applied over to something like math seems weird. But he was convincing to me in the sense that there is kind of like a camaraderie that comes with athletics, especially in high school and middle school. And that's missing a bit from our academic studies. Like, why shouldn't there be a kind of a, a sense of just everyone working together in a math class in the same way that when you're playing baseball or football? Well, I mean, there's a reason why team building exercises bring... <laughs> worker workers closer right it's like you when you experience some kind of you know challenging event some kind of an emotional roller coaster you feel more bonded to the people with whom you share that experience so i mean i think there's there's a part of that that you can imagine can be true of math too where the teacher instead of sort of saying hey you got to learn this can can sort of help students kind of walk through i wouldn't call it hazing (laughs) i don't want to use that word but exercises in which they have to kind of you know, work together and compete and go through. I, I just thought it was an interesting idea to sort of, you know, take this kind of emotional component um, of bonding, of, of, of creating connections with others and applying it to something that is hard uh, math, just like football or any other sports game, you know, makes you do something hard physically. Um, you know, math, math does the same thing for your for your men- for you mentally. Hold up, though. You said one word that kind of raised my cankles, like the idea of of competing in a math class, mm-hmm. uh, because I am not a huge fan of competition and like literacy and math. These kind of like fundamentals of education only because there's so many people that are coming into these classrooms at different levels and like with different sort of uh, potential educational mindsets um, at how they're approaching this. They, and if, if we introduce a competitive environment 
to something that is not a competitive sport, like math isn't a competitive sport at the end of the day. We're not keeping score in math. Uh, I worry wait, about ab- that a lot. Absolutely we are. <laughs> like compared to literature, there is a right answer, right? There are there are ways. And, and you know, I feel like maybe, maybe this is just different from where I grew up, but we certainly, you know, who, who was where on the kind of pecking order of grades in the class was like really clear to me at all times. Like, you know, because you get, you get, at, you know, you get a score on every single test. And so you know wh- how well you did. And then, you know, when your teacher tells you how that is compared to the rest of the class, you kind of, you know, it becomes competition. But so so I actually think it's already inherent in the fact that math can give you an, an, a kind of objective score. But what I was thinking of is is kind of making it team-based. So imagine that, you know, it's not that, you you know, just like in physical education and PE class, you get divided up into teams and now you have to work together to beat the other team. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, what do you think about it in, from, from that perspective? That scares the heck out of me. <laughs> really? Like just seeing that in a math class seems uh, like, and it's not just that it seems foreign to me, is that it somehow feels like exclusionary. Like I, I because think. kids are tough and they are rough and I can just imagine the dynamics that make me cringe a little bit um, during sports playing out in a classroom. Uh, I don't. All this though brings up the larger conversation, and we've had this conversation throughout episodes going back, you know, years now. Which is what is the approach to math uh, that is going to change this kind of still sticky idea that that math is hard and math isn't for everyone. Uh, and that seems to be like John's driving point is that anyone can do it, uh, especially if you just are encouraged and given permission to explore. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I think that that's true. I, I and I, I think that there are a lot of people that can have that message. I feel like John is uniquely situated to sort of compare what it's like to be part of a team in which you have this very close relationship with others and with a coach who gives you a lot of motivation. I mean, I don't, I've, I don't know that I've ever really experienced that, to be honest. But he seemed incredibly loyal to some of his coaches, and his coaches seemed to really have an outsized influence on his decision-making in life. Um, and I think that that's probably characteristic when you are playing you know, football or kinds of these, these, these team sports at a very, very high level. Um, so anyway, I, I just, I think that's, it's an interesting kind of way to think about, you know, math can sometimes feel cold and sterile and, you know, there's no emotion in it. Um, and, you know, maybe that's, maybe, maybe, maybe there's some way of bringing an emotion that, that in, incorporates enthusiasm um, into the teaching of math. So it reminds me of um, Ed Frankel's book, Love and Math, uh, you know, where he just, you know, his, his, his love for math is so infectious in that book that I feel like, you know, it's kind of the same thing as a coach kind of giving you a pep talk. Um, and I, and I don't think that that's the way math is taught in most classrooms. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like 
to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Gian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option because we know how expensive mental health care can be. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.